I'm Dove Tuzman, and you're back on Equal Footing. We've got another episode broadcast from the heart of Utah. And in the spirit of last week's show, which is about this very special relationship between the Church of Latter-day Saints, the, the Mormon Church, and the Jewish community, we have tonight a little bit of a different angle, but it touches on both communities, both our Jewish world, particularly our Orthodox Jewish world, and the LDS and activities that have been going on for a century in charitable works. In Judaism, we have the concept of tzedakah, and in uh, LDS, or in the Mormon tradition, you have the concept of tithing. But you know what? This uh, a concept of charitable works tied into religious uh, worship and observance goes back to the beginning of the Republic of the United States, really? Or does it go back all the way to the beginning of the, quote-unquote, Holy Roman Empire almost 2,000 years ago? The answer is B. All right, what are we talking about here? We're talking about a key foundational element to religion, at least in the United States, if not historically and globally, and that's the tax exemption. Yeah, you heard it right. We're going to do a show on taxes. We were going to call this show God and Taxes, but instead we called it in our social media blast the Heavenly Bank Account. Special recognition to any listener who can catch that reference, the Heavenly Bank Account. Religious tax exemptions are the tax exemptions of churches, synagogues, mosques, religious organizations has been a pillar in this country, arguably since the founding of the Republic, uh, but certainly since the latter part, informally, always, uh, churches and religious organizations were tax-exempt in the United States of America, but in the latter part of the 19th century, that was form- formally codified and then um, backed up by various Supreme Court decisions and so forth at the beginning of the 20th century. We have, believe it or not, a subject matter expert on all sides of this issue tonight. And you know what? We know we've hit on a good subject when it's hard to get guests who are willing to talk about it. We had rabbis and ministers and priests and so forth decline the invitation, I guess unsurprisingly, to talk about the murky world of religious tax exemptions. But we have a better guest. We have a professor from the University of Tampa, spent a lot of time in the academic sphere assessing this issue, very balanced from different perspectives, also former LDS member, so brings a perspective apropos to our doing the episode here from Utah uh, tonight. And that's Dr. Ryan Cragen. So Dr. Cragen, Professor Cragen, he's, I love this beginning of his intro. He's a husband, a father, and a sociologist of life stances, in order of importance, by the way, husband, father, and sociologist. Dr. Cragen's focus and his scholarship is really non-religion as well as Mormonism, his research has been published in a variety of academic journals, such as the Journal for Scientific Study of Religion, Sociology of Religion, and Social Science and Medicine. He's the author and editor of numerous books, including a wonderful book that we just started reading in our pregame research called Organized Secularism in the U.S. Dr. Craig, and I think we've got another show down the road on, on that topic. When he's not working, Professor Craig is spending time with his wife and son, hiking or tinkering with computers. For more about his work, visit his website. It's ryan.cragen.com. That's R-Y-A-N 
T-C-R-A-G-U-N.com, Ryan, uh, Ryan T, pardon me, Ryan T. Cragen.com. And Dr. Cragen's originally from Utah. He now lives in Florida and, as I said, is a professor at the University of Tampa. Professor Cragen, welcome to Equal Footing. Thanks. Uh, delighted to be here. Thanks, to, thanks for the invite to have me on. And kudos to you for your courage to talk about this sensitive subject. Let's start at the top. And for those not, most people, I imagine, know that not-for-profits in the United States are tax-exempt. What is Rule 501c3, and to whom does it apply? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So um, it, it actually applies to a number of different organizations, so organizations that are scientific, uh, that are educational, that are charitable, and then there's actually a clause in there that religious organizations also get this exemption. So an important note for your listeners right at the beginning, religions receive this tax exemption not because they're charities. This is a common misconception. A lot of people think, oh, religions get this exemption because they're, they're charities, and it's actually not. They get an exemption because they're religions. That's it. That's, that's the basis of their exemption. Dr. Cragen, I was interested to learn in some of the pregame discussions that actually the charitable works within religious organizations have kind of a lesser tax exemption. They're less protected. Is that right? Uh, well, it, it's kind of interesting because uh, the way that it works, uh, no, um, if they separate out their charitable work, then that can that can be tax exempt for the reasons that a charity would be tax exempt. But most religions don't actually do that. Often they will uh, make the claim that um, they're doing a lot of charitable work when, in fact, we can talk about the extent of their charitable work. It's actually quite small. Um, but it's pretty rare to actually find religions separating out a charitable arm from the religious arm. Most keep them combined in-house. Okay, and do... Do churches, uh, religious, any religious community, synagogues, religious organizations, monasteries, et cetera, do they have to report their financials to the IRS? They are under no legal obligation to do so, uh, which makes them unique among all of these organizations that have this tax exemption. They do not have to report anything financially to the IRS. So this actually is genuinely what makes them very, very unique. Uh, charitable organizations, educational organizations, scientific organizations, any other tax-exempt organization, they have to report all of their finances to the IRS, not religions. Okay, so charities do have to report their, their finances. Uh, religious organizations don't. And is there any other organization or even exempted individual in the United States who doesn't have to file their financials or a religious organization, the one exception? As far as I'm aware, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not, uh, you know, a, a tax expert on all aspects of this, just the religion stuff. As far as I'm aware, religions are the only ones that do not have to, to file any information. Now, they can be uh, quote-unquote forced, and I'm putting that in scare quotes, um, if a sitting member of Congress actually makes a specific request that they be audited, then they could, in fact, be audited. Chuck Grassley actually tried this uh, more than a decade ago, and more than half of the religions that he said, hey, we want to audit you, they actually just said no, and he didn't do anything. So that's how much power religions have in the U.S. 
that it takes a sitting member of Congress to make a special request to try and get their financial information. And if they say no, there are no consequences. Let's take a step back for a second, Professor Cragen, and help us understand the reason for this. So it's got to be what's the basic kind of one sentence reason for the lay listener as to why you wouldn't tax a religious organization? Sure. So all of those uh, organizations that we talked about, scientific, educational, charitable, and religious, they all get a tax exemption under the assumption that they are a net benefit for society. So for that very basic lay explanation, that's the, that's the basic reason why they're given this, uh, this exemption, is that it's assumed that they are a net benefit for society, and therefore we should not tax them. And I think that's really interesting because as we're preparing for this show, I thought it was some sort of bargain that the founding fathers had in, you know, in the creation of the republic around, you know, protecting religion or something. But it really does have to do with this concept of net benefit. And this concept of net benefit would apply to charities as well, right? Is that why charities aren't taxed as, as well? Exactly. So it actually predates the founding of the United States, and it goes back to British common law. And it was basically just kind of a fiat of the king at the time when he was establishing which organizations would be taxed. And, you know, the, the leadership at the time said, well, these institutions seems like, seem like they're net benefits for society, including scientific institutions, educational institutions, charities, and religions, and therefore they will all be tax exempt. And so it was just a, a fiat that was kind of laid out that they are a net benefit without, you know, anybody doing any research into determining if that's true. You know, you're geeking out as a show host when you start to look at tax laws hundreds of years ago. And I did come across that in the research, the English Statute of Charitable Uses of 1601. Now, I teased at the outset of the show, Professor, that this actually goes back almost 2,000 years. Is, is, is that the case? Um, again, it gets very complicated, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's largely been the case throughout much of recorded history that there have been special tax statuses for religious functionaries and for religions. Um, I don't know that we know all the details, right? So a lot of that is, is lost to history, but certainly that's been the case historically. Yeah, Emperor Constantine and like the, the 312 uh, common era apparently put in place some sort of tax exemption when tying Christianity to, to, the, to the crown. I, I wonder today how popular it is. So before we get into some of the pros and cons and the more controversial, juicy stuff in the show, you know, a few years ago there was a, a tax to the churches thing that went on, I think in partly in reaction to the revelations around, like, uh, the evangelist Joel Austin's wealth and so forth. How popular? Do you know what the poll numbers are? Do, do most Americans support the religious tax exemption? You know, that's, that's a great question, and I'm going to have to say, like, this is exactly the kind of thing that I should have asked in one of my surveys, but I'm, I'm aware of no nationally representative surveys that have asked that specific question. We have a number of questions about confidence in organized religion, but I don't know of any surveys that have asked whether people think churches should be taxed, that are, there are good nationally representative surveys. So I, I don't know that I could answer that question, to be honest. 
Well, maybe we'll get into that a little bit with listeners' comments and questions. Before we go to our first break, I'll get a little granular because I don't think people, I certainly didn't realize how deep and wide this tax exemption goes. So let me ask you a couple of rapid-fire questions, Professor Cragen, and give us a sense and, uh, of where this tax exemption be, you know, ends. If I'm a clergy person, if I'm a, uh, a rabbi, uh, a Buddhist monk, uh, a, a priest, um, is my, do I have an income tax exemption as an individual when I'm paid by the congregation, for example? Am I paying taxes? Do I pay taxes? You know, how does my housing treat it? To what extent does this tax exemption apply to individuals? Okay, so with clergy, so that's the blanket term that we would use here, um, it, it's a little bit complicated. Often clergy are actually hired as independent contractors, they're not usually direct employees of the congregation uh, or, you know, whatever organization it is. Sometimes they are. Um, but where it gets tricky, so if they are um, effectively self-employed, so they're an independent contractor, then they would pay the same self-employment taxes as anybody else. However, they have a couple of exceptions here. So one of them is uh, clergy, religious clergy, can opt out of SICA, which is what funds Social Security. They're the only group in the United States that can opt out of paying Social Security taxes. Now, if they do that, they don't get Social Security benefits. So there is a trade-off there, and that is typically something that is used by, um, like, monks or nuns who live in a communal order, right? But but they can't actually do that. The other really interesting exemption that applies to clergy specifically is what's called the parsonage exemption. So the parsonage exemption basically says that clergy can discount the upkeep and expenses that are associated with their housing from their taxable income. So before they pay their taxes, they can deduct how much they're spending on, you know, maintaining their house, whether that's uh, refinishing their pool or whether, you know, it's putting a new roof on. They can deduct all of that from their taxable income, and then they pay a reduced income. So they would still pay taxes, um, but they have a couple of exemptions that are specific to clergy. Got it. So the housing of the clergy is got some special tax treatment that other individuals in society don't have. Exactly. Yep. Now, what about property taxes? Do do churches and, and synagogues and and monasteries and so forth do they do they pay any property tax? They pay no property tax. Now that can get a little complicated depending on the nature of the property that they own. So if it's property that's being used for religious purposes, then they will pay zero in property taxes anywhere in the country. If they own other property that they use for, uh, you know, business purposes, then they may have to pay taxes on that, but we can get into that when we talk about related and unrelated business income taxes and some of the other things. But basically, if it's property that they own that is being used exclusively for religious purposes, they will pay no property taxes. And if a religious organization owns a business, uh, I don't know, that's selling, uh, selling tchotchkes in the lobby or, or goodness, I don't know, a bakery. Or other, I'm sure there are tons of businesses that are owned by religious organizations. Do they have to pay tax on the business side or does that all roll up into the tax exemption? So this is where you get this odd distinction between what are called arbits and ubits, related business income taxes and unrelated business income taxes. If they can make the argument that the business that they own is related to the functioning of the religion, so let's say it's selling religious literature or maybe it's a daycare for the employees, 
those are all going to be tax-exempt. So if, if they can make the argument that it's related to the business, uh, the religion, then it's tax-exempt. If it's unrelated, so let's say it's a religion that owns, um, I don't know, an insurance company, right? And they're insuring people outside of the religion. Maybe they're insuring corporations or something like that. Uh, then that, they would pay taxes on that just like any corporation. So there's that interesting distinction and how that distinction is made between whether it's related or unrelated is actually not entirely clear. Well, that goes to my last question before our first break. And who determines this stuff? I mean, so far it may sound a little bit dry. This is going to get quite murky quite soon in our next segment after the break. But who decides what's a religious organization? How do you qualify? Is there anybody overseeing this? Or you just say, I am a religious organization, and it is what it is. So... Technically, your last statement is accurate. That's, that's all that's really required um, for somebody to set up a religion. Now, that doesn't mean that the IRS won't audit you. So the IRS does have the power to audit somebody, and if they thought somebody was doing something a bit sketchy, if they didn't believe that it was actually a religion, they do have the power to audit somebody. So it's not like I'm trying to suggest to anybody, hey, just say you're a religion and suddenly you're a religion. The IRS will go after people who are flagrantly uh, abusing this, but when it comes to things like determining whether something is related or unrelated business income, um, that's more murky. Uh, often it's probably going to be up first to the religions themselves to make that determination, and then maybe the IRS could step in and say, uh, we're not quite sure on this. But, but in effect, it's, it's the religions who are policing themselves. Wow. That is uh, fascinating. i got a couple more questions on that. We're going to take our first break. You want to participate in this conversation about religious tax exemptions? Yeah, you heard me right. We're talking about taxes tonight. We're here with Professor Ryan Cragen from the University of Tampa, subject matter expert, published author on this topic. Call in. Uh, be, please be patient if you're calling in because our wonderful radio engineer, Dimitri, is solo in the studio in Brooklyn tonight. So please keep letting the phone ring so we'll see you on the board. You can also text a comment or question. Here is the number to call to participate live. That's uh, on the air, 718-303-9090. That's 718-303-9090. Again, please be patient. Let it ring until Dimitri picks you up. You can also text in a question or comment, as always, via SMS or WhatsApp or iMessenger, whatever, to 917-428-4062. That's 917-428-4062. God and taxes. We'll be right back. He's got $50 million in his heavenly bank account. All from those chumps who was born again. Oh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> we may have just given away the challenge to our listeners at the beginning of the program on the uh, late, the, the title for tonight's program, see if anyone picks that up. All right. Equal Footing is brought to you in significant part by DocuVax, a wonderful sponsor now for years. DocuVax is a very cool digital medical locker. It allows you to take all of your medical information, like your, vaccine, your vaccination records, your blood exam results, your pre-screening results like uh, colorectal exam or breast cancer screening, allergy information. You just download it in whatever format you got it in, PDF, JPEG, whatever. You just download it. 
into the DocuVax locker and you have nurses and doctors on call for you 24 hours a day, 365 days a year to interpret, validate those records, give you a reference to someone other than a general practitioner. It saves you a lot of money. Keep up to date on when you need to get a new vaccination, when you need to get a new screening, a blood test for something, some pre-existing condition. Check it out, DocuVax. You can get the app on the Android or iPhone app stores. That's D-O-C-U-V-A-X. That's D-O-C-U-V-A-X, DocuVax. You can also go online to DocuVax.com. And if you want group discounts, if you're a small business owner and you want to provide the DocuVax benefit to your employees like you would a gym membership, have it easy to take yeah, keep track of your medical records, call. Mention that you heard about it on the Equal Footing Radio Show and you get a group discount. That's 833 859 1933 for group discounts for DocuVax Digital Medical Locker System call 833-859-1933 and if you think this is out of your budget it hardly costs anything for less than $7 a month you can track all of your medical records you know what a year's worth of subscription of DocuVax you could make back just in the savings for one reference to a medical specialist without having to go through your general practitioner it's affordable and saves you money. DocuVax keeps your medical records safe and secure using a proprietary QR code-based system. Your medical records do not belong to the government. They don't belong to your insurance company even. They don't even belong to your doctor. They belong to you. So get organized. Check out DocuVax. Take control of your medical file. I've been calling. All right, we're back on equal footing. We're talking about religious tax exemptions. I am a certified nerd. I am finding this stuff so interesting. I hope our listeners are as well. Professor Ryan Cragen, thank you for joining us tonight. Subject matter expert, professor at the University of Tampa. Professor, before we went to the break, we're talking about, I love this, you could basically kind of say, hey, uh, myself and my friends, we are a religion, and you can get a tax exemption. Now, you may get audited by the IRS, one of the things that freaked me out a little bit in the research coming up to this show was how few of those audits actually occur. Like, the chances apparently are like 1 in 50 to get audited about being a certified religious organization versus being audited as an individual taxpayer. Is the IRS kind of afraid of pushing on this button and auditing religious organizations? Um, yeah, probably. <laughs> they they certainly have had a rough go of it uh, in recent years. Uh, not to bring up, it's a very famous case, but um, Scientology actually sued the IRS because they lost their tax exemption. So the IRS basically said, you're, you, we don't think that you're actually a religion. And so what Scientology did is they got hundreds of their members, hundreds, to all file lawsuits against the IRS. Uh, and, of course, they were funding those, so they had plenty of money to fund this. Um, but it was costing the IRS hundreds of thousands of dollars to try and defend all these lawsuits, and eventually they just settled. And they, by settling, what they did is they said, okay, we'll grant that you're a religion. You don't have to pay taxes. Uh, and that's why they did it. That's why the, the Church of Scientology actually did it, is they wanted to get the tax exemption because it matters that much for religions. So I think they are very afraid of this, and right now, I think you can see just in terms of politics, there aren't uh, enough sitting members of Congress to back the IRS in these types of initiatives uh, because it's pretty rare to find an openly kind of 
critical member of Congress who's willing to be critical of religions. Right. So let's dig in a little bit into the the uh, size here. You you've done some general mapping of lost. Uh, taxes, income taxes and property taxes in the United States due to this religious tax exemption. It's not uh, perfect science, but you're probably at the vanguard of your field in this regard. What are we talking about in terms of lost revenues to tax coffers? Yeah, so I do want to start this out. I mean, any listener who has, you know, some experience with tax law or anything like this will immediately recognize that there are some problems with this. But but underlying these uh, kind of estimates are a couple of assumptions that, you know, people can certainly debate whether they're valid or not. Basically, what we did when we first did this, which was 10 years ago, now 2012, is we, we made the assumption that we were going to treat religions as though they were the equivalent of a for-profit corporation. And so what tax revenue would be lost at various stages of the government, so local state and federal, if religions were actually taxed the same way as for-profit corporations. And when you start adding that up, um, the numbers get very big very quickly. Um, so we'll just give kind of one. If we look at property tax uh, across the U.S., what religions don't have to pay, so this is effectively an indirect subsidy because they're not getting direct money, they're just not having to pay it. We estimated in 2012 it was a loss to uh, local and state governments of somewhere around $26.2 billion. Now, if we add up all the ones that we could estimate, uh, which includes federal income tax and state income tax and investment taxes and a variety of others, we estimated that uh, government uh, that religions in the U.S. were being subsidized somewhere to the tune of around $71 billion a year, and that was 10 years ago. My guess, And we, we didn't estimate a lot of taxes because it's just too hard to estimate these things, um, but my guess is it's, it's substantially higher today. Now, there was recent press, let's say recent, in the last couple of years, that the Church of Latter-day Saints, and I understand that you grew up Mormon. Uh, not, I'm not picking on you. I'm just using this as an example that perhaps you have more insight to into, into the, the, than the average academic, let's say. Uh, has the, the Church of Latter-day Saints has over $100 billion in assets under management. Now, that would, that would put that organization in at least the top 100, if not the top 50 top financial institutions in the United States. Um, and yet, until recently, no one knew. Uh, so I guess I got two questions there. Uh, how is it possible that there are such extraordinarily large organizations? Thrivent, for example, is a Fortune 500 company that was set up in the early 20th century for the Lutheran churches, literally a Fortune 500 company, and it's also a tax-exempt religious organization. You know, how do these how do these organizations get by for so long? Thrivent, of course, reports its public financials, but the, the Church of Latter-day Saints has not. Uh, how do you get by without this disclosure? And is the fix to some of this as simple as forcing disclosure, if not taxing? Yeah, so we, in, a, in, in essence, already answered that first question, which is they're not required, right? So religions do not have to report any of this. Uh, the reason why we found out about the LDS Church and their massive uh, amount of investments, which keep in mind, they don't pay investment taxes either, so there are no capital gains taxes that they have to pay on any of that money that's all invested. Uh, but they don't have to report any of that. Some religions volunteer that information, so they, they can if they want to report it, but they are under no legal obligation to report it. And the only reason we found out is because there was a whistleblower who came out and said, I used to work for this group, and here's how much they actually have. 
So they can get by with not making this public because they don't have to. So that's the, the first big key issue here. To answer your second question, and it's not so much that I think uh, many Amer- – I mean, there, there very well may be, you know, tens of millions of Americans who are really appalled by this, by how much money the LDS Church has or some of these other religions. But we don't know that, right? We, we, we genuinely don't know that. Um, but I think that the real question there is um, – whether people would be upset if we did know how much money they were making, but we have no idea because we just don't know. I mean, it it almost seems to make sense that, like, the very first step is just to bring them in line with other charitable organizations and scientific organizations and educational organizations by saying, you know what, you have to report your financial information. Uh, the counterargument to that is many of these religions have said, oh, that's particularly onerous, right? That would be that would be cumbersome, and it would it would cost us money to do this. Well, uh, I don't think the LDS Church is going to go bankrupt if it has to report its financial information. I think they could afford that. Uh, so often, what you'll see is these very affluent big churches that have lots of money. They'll use that argument, but they'll use it in defense of small, really tiny rural churches that maybe have fifty members in rural Alabama, and that say, "Oh, you know, that's going to cost them." Maybe a few hundred dollars, maybe even a thousand dollars to find to, to uh, report their taxes at the end of the year. Uh, that that's the counter argument, right? That it's expensive and burdensome, but we really don't know what they what money they have. I was surprised to to see Professor in some of the research leading up to the show that there's some there's a little bit of common territory around transparency and tax advocates and uh, organizations that are trying to root out other abuse, or I shouldn't say other abuse, abuse in religious organizations, uh, a lot of it's sexual abuse. For example, organizations like Jewish Community Watch have been on record at times of supporting greater financial transparency amongst religious organizations with the argument that if there's disclosure of financials, you'll also see things like legal settlements. You'll also see things like labor costs and other other um, indicators that might make it easier to track and unearth abuse. Um, this may be a little further afield, but you are a professor of sociology, not of tax law. Uh, what's your view on this? Do you think that, that at the very least disclosure, if not taxation, would have a salutary effect in other respects in religious organizations? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And uh, I, I hate to admit it you know, on the air that I hadn't thought about that linkage between settlements and disclosure, uh, but I really, really like that idea that we could find out just how much these religions are paying in terms of their settlements, um, which might give us a better sense of how widespread the sex abuse really is. I don't think we have even an inkling of how widespread sex abuse is in religions. And that gets to a different issue, which we don't really have to get into, which is the structure of religions and how they're very amenable to, to basically abuse. Uh, but, but that abuse also happens financially. So it's not uncommon to hear about uh, individuals embezzling money from religions, stealing money from religions, uh, because, again, there's no financial oversight. So it's, you know, it's the fox watching the hen house when it comes to religions and their finances because there's nobody actually watching what's happening with the money. Now, if you're a very affluent religion, you may actually bring in, pri- you know, private auditors to come in and audit your finances. But if, you know, let's say that you're a local mega church without some denominational affiliation and you're bringing in, you know, anywhere from hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars a year and one person is in charge of those finances, 
who's watching that person? We have no idea how those finances are being managed and whether they're literally just taking the money. Yeah, I think when there's no one looking over your shoulder, of course, there's there's more apt to we're more apt to see abuse in these organizations. And it's interesting that uh, the Me Too movement has been uh, has advocated also allied with financial disclosure within corporations because it's a way to see where settlements are being done and how widespread and disclosures. So if the if the settlements are at a certain level, there has to be disclosures as to the the essence of the settlement and the basis of it. So anyway, it's an interesting sidebar. We're going to come back after the break. We're talking to Professor Ryan Cragen. We're talking about at least what I find to be this fascinating uh, murky world of religious tax exemption. Uh, Professor, after the break, I'm going to try to put my, you know, modern Orthodox Jew, uh, you know, uh, uh, try to stand up for some of the wonderful organizations that we have in the Jewish world that are that are tax-exempt, uh, charitable organizations, some of the ones I'm aware of. And let's do a little bit of, uh, of advocacy. Um, we'll be right back after the break. I'll leave you with a quote. I'm paraphrasing a little professor, pardon me, by Albert Einstein, who said the hardest thing in the world to understand is tax. We'll be right back. I peep inside, Lord, I lose all hope, cause from those total wages earned down to that net amount that's due, I feel a painful sense of loss between the two. Equal Footing with Dove Tusman is sponsored by MDCS Dermatology, your experts in skincare. With two Manhattan locations and four offices in Long Island, including Plainview and Comac, the dermatologists and skincare surgeons at MDCS are proud to be affiliated with the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and New York Presbyterian Hospital. So schedule your next skin exam in one of MDCS's convenient New York area locations. To make an appointment, go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-DERM. That's 212-661-3376. You can even schedule a virtual video visit with MDCS's board-certified dermatologists from the comfort and safety of your own home. So go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-3376. And don't forget to mention Equal Footing for 15% off all cosmetic procedures. You're back on Equal Footing. I'm Joe Tusman. I'm on with our wonderful guest, Professor Dr. Ryan Cragen from the University of Tampa. And we are talking about Rule 501c3, the IRS tax rule exempting charitable organizations and religious organizations. In general, we're talking about the mechanics and the ethics of religious tax exemption. Do you know you can just say your religion? You say, hey, myself and my buddies, we're living under this uh, same roof. We're a religion, and we should be tax exempt. We are tax exempt until you audit us and prove us otherwise. <laughs> All right. Professor Cragen, I'm going to uh, try to, to play the advocate. I'm not going to say the devil's advocate. There, let's, and maybe you can help listeners through this understand the difference between religious work and charitable work. Within the Jewish world, we have, for example, Hatzalah, this wonderful uh, ambulance service that really has operations all over many parts of the world and provides immediate assistance, not just to Jewish people, but to, to others that maybe can't afford and need immediate response and, and work very closely with uh, local hospitals and, and, and healthcare agencies. Now, that's a tax-exempt organization. Um, now, I don't understand exactly how the ruling was made with that, because is it intrinsically religious? I don't know. 
But why, why on earth would you take away our exemption? I mean, is, that, is, that, is there any real argument to taking away the exemption for Hatsala, for example? Right. I think that's, that's a great illustration um, because you have basically a separate organization, right? So they're not providing a religious service, quote-unquote. They're providing a service that if it didn't exist, the government would have to step in and provide that service. And that's usually the line that is used to determine whether somebody is, you know, some institution is engaged in charitable work, is if that institution's services were taken away, would this be something that the government would have to step in and provide? And I, I think the example that you gave, right, the, these ambulance services, absolutely. I mean, most places it is the government who provides that kind of service. But if we took away, say, a congregation praying for rain for um, the state of Texas, right, is the government going to step in and provide that service? So th- there are very different ways to think about that. Right, and this is really the essence of the matter, isn't it? Like Hatsala, Hatsala Emergency Medical Services, Inc., is the 501c3 organization. It's got an IRS ruling for tax exemption, but it's it's tax exempted for charitable reasons, not for religious reasons, even though it happens to also have a lot of Venn diagram crossover with religious organizations. Now, what about a uh, a synagogue? And, you know, that synagogue is not paying property taxes. There are tax uh, exemptions for, for, the, for the resident rabbi, maybe others involved. Um, is there any good argument, or is, is there a groundswell of support, I don't know, uh, to take away tax exemptions for actual places of worship? Yeah, that's, a, that's another really good one. So there are two pieces that I think are worth thinking about there, um, and I'll, I'll try and take them in turn. So the first one is, we, we want to try and disentangle how charitable, a, say, a synagogue is. Um, because if they are, in fact, engaging in lots and lots of charitable activity, then it wouldn't make very much sense to, to try and take their tax exemption away because they're engaging in stuff that the government would have to provide otherwise. But what we've found, and there isn't a ton of research on this, but what we found is that the most charitable religions um, in the U.S., we're, we're talking just about the U.S., uh, give less than 30% of their revenue to address the physical needs of people. Um, If you compare that to, say, the Red Cross, the Red Cross gives over 92% of its revenue to address the physical needs of people, and only about 7 to 8% goes to overhead to pay salaries, to pay for buildings, to things like that. Whereas in, in religions, take that synagogue, for instance, usually it's more than 70% of the revenue goes to pay salaries, to pay for upkeep for the building, um, to pay for all of these other things, and not to address the physical needs. So at a very basic level, religions don't tend to be very functional as charities. They're, they're not charities. So that's the first piece is that um, we shouldn't think about them as charities because they're really not. Then the second piece is um, when we think about what the clergy do, effectively they're engaged in an exchange of services. So people donate, but they're donating for something. They're not donating for nothing, right? They're donating for something, and that that something is the services that are provided by clergy. Maybe not the fairest example, but it's very similar, in effect, to what a therapist does or maybe an educator like myself. Uh, should, you know, should... I not have to, should I get like a parsonage exemption or should I not have to pay taxes because 
I provide an education for my students. Uh, and certainly that is one of the functions of a rabbi in a synagogue is to educate the members of the, of the synagogue. Um, similar therapists, right? So therapists are providing a service and they're getting paid for it. So the argument that can be made is, one, they aren't engaged in very much charitable work, some more than others, but it's really not that much. And then the second piece is, they're providing a service, and effectively that's an exchange service, so why shouldn't they be taxed for that? You know, on this subject of the actual places of worship, uh, in, in leading up to the show, we were looking at this Tax the Churches uh, movement, which again got some momentum from discoveries of large caches of, of wealth, right? Joel Austin and other you know, evangelistic uh, groups. But it turns out that Tax the Churches is not a, it was not really uh, primarily based in kind of a, a progressive, I don't know what you call it, leftist reaction to the Bible Belt. But a lot of the support I found was in rural communities, surprisingly, within the Bible Belt. Um, where you'd have small towns um, have you would have churches that may occupy a very significant part of important real estate downtown, um, and may actually have significant income related to businesses they own and so forth, but are providing zero into the tax coffers. Um, is this is this a big issue? You know, this was made to be a big issue in the media. And your view as a as a, as a professor focusing on this on this topic, um, do you think that this is an issue that is affecting small town America? Yeah, um, I, I think it is, and I don't want to, to dramatically overstate this, so I'm going to try and be very careful here. Uh, but when we think about property taxes, property taxes help pay for, say, firefighters, police, for ambulance services. Sometimes they pay for roads, but they also can pay for utilities. They pay for education. So they often go for very necessary functional aspects of any society, and Religions are the beneficiaries of all of those services. If somebody has a heart attack in a, in a church or a synagogue, an ambulance is going to come. If there's a fire, the firefighters are going to come. Uh, you know, heaven forbid somebody comes in and tries to shoot up the place, but the police will come. So religions are getting all of those public services but not paying for any of them. And that's where you can start to get people saying, oh, this is really problematic, particularly in rural areas, like you mentioned, in rural areas where religions own a lot of the property, they're, in in essence, pulling that revenue out, and then everybody else has to make that up. So this is how you get someone like Mark Twain, right? Mark Twain, writing over 100 years ago, said, how much do the non-believers and the non-religious people have to pay to subsidize all of the services that religions actually get? And it's, it's an interesting question. Now, that said, I did recently do an estimate to see if we did make religions, and this was in Manatee County in Florida, if we made religions pay property taxes, how much would that increase, increase the revenue in the entire county? And it was about 1% of the revenue would, uh, was the equivalent of what they were losing, uh, which, you know, is millions of dollars. It's, it's not nothing, but it's not, you know, 50% of the revenue. That may be higher in more rural areas, but that's an open question. We don't know. Uh, you, you, so uh, Samuel Clemens, a.k.a. Mark Twain, you, 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 pre- you, uh, you sanitized that one a little bit. He said, no church property is taxed, and so the infidel and the atheist and the man without religion are taxed to make up the deficit in the public income. And I think that that's, I mean, that's, a, like you said, a well over 100 years ago uh, that he wrote that this, this is a hot 
subject that goes back actually to the founding of the Republic. You had uh, Professor uh, President James Madison very earlier in the very early in the Republic. Professor, uh, President James Garfield, Ulysses Grant, so forth, speaking up against this. Really at the crux of charitable works and, and religion, with the idea that yeah, the charitable works part should be non uh, should be tax exempt, but why should someone that isn't part of a certain religion or not religious at all, which now makes up a majority actually of the United States, that qualify as non-religious, not non-God believing, but non-religious, support um, religious worship, and that's really the question on the table, and it's a tough one, Professor, for our listeners, because listen, a lot of our listeners benefit greatly from religious organizations. In in the Orthodox Jewish world in particular, these are not just places of worship. These are community organizations that support these communities in, in many ways. So is there a simple solution other than disclosure? And I want to get to some of our listeners' questions as well, but uh, what's the solution to this, this conundrum? Is there a way to make everyone happy here? Oh, boy, the, the, the magic question, right? Can we make everybody happy? Um, I think the first step really is disclosure. We need to know what we're actually talking about. So that has to be the first step. The second step can then be a negotiation. So, um, you know, depending on what we find in terms of... Oh, go ahead. Professor, pardon the interruption. For those who may have tuned in later in the show, religious organizations do not have to report their financials to the IRS. So when, when you say, Dr. Craig, in disclosure, you're just talking about, not okay, we're not going to tax you, but you at least have to tell us what the numbers are so we get a chance right. to understand what we're losing in tax revenue, what expenses might be, et cetera. Sorry for the interruption. Yeah. So I, so I think that's the first step is that we really need to have that kind of information. And and I get that some say it's, it, it would be onerous for smaller churches. I, I understand that we could find ways to, to address that. But um, without that information, we really don't know what we're talking about. Uh, and then the next step would be, okay, well, let's see how much revenue is actually lost. And maybe religions have to pay a reduced tax property rate, right? And maybe maybe that's the, the next step in the negotiation. If they are the beneficiaries of all these public services, maybe they should have to pay a reduced rate. That's an open question. I'm not advocating for that. I just think it's a question that should be asked, that we should be thinking about at a very fundamental level, is whether they should be contributing more. Great. We're going to take our last break. We're here with Professor Ryan Craig, and we're talking about religious tax exemptions. Religious organizations don't pay tax in the United States. It's also They're also very rarely audited. It can self-qualify as religious, and those exemptions are much broader than you might think. But you know what? Is it all for the benefit of the public good? Open question. We'll be right back. fun to pick music for tonight's program. Our, our producer and I had fun with it because he tried looking up, you know, taxes and God or music about taxes. <laughs> Some good stuff out there. Not quite as much about like unrequited love, but it's pretty far up there. A lot of music on taxes. All right. Equal footing is brought to you in part. I got to mention our sponsors talking about money here uh, by Mechanical Art Capital. Mechanical Art Capital, three different words. Download the app on your iPhone or Android device if you are a watch lover, if you're a watch collector, you're a watch dealer, mechanical, space, art, space, capital. And that app allows you to quick, quickly appraise your collection or your inventory and get cash. 
Yes, within two days max, often same day, you can get cash against your watch, your timepiece, collection, or inventory. You don't have to have go through a credit check. It's not a burdensome process. Maybe you need to expand your uh, retail footprint or you want to do you know, some work in the house or whatever. If you're a big watch collector or a watch dealer, you have a lot of value there that you're not getting any leverage on. The rates are reasonable. Check out Mechanical Art Capital's overnight financing against watches. You can download the app, like I said, by going to Mechanical Art Capital, or you can go to the website, mechanicalartcapital.com. You can also call 833-209-0972. That's 833-209-0972 for Mechanical Art Capital's watch financing options. We'll be right back. I've been Professor, you've been great. Professor Ryan Craig, and we're talking about tax exemptions and religious organizations. I want to hit some of our uh, questioner, some of our questions, some of our listener questions and comments. And uh, thank you for those who've called in. We may try to get to them on, uh, on air, but at least we're going to get to some of these text uh, points. Um, so uh, one listener is uh, Rabbi Mike. He's been on the program before. Um, he says that, that churches and synagogues receive the most special treatment from the IRS. Seems to be beyond what all other nonprofits receive. This feels like favoritism. Is this constitutional? Uh, that's a that's a great question. So there is a uh, getting to kind of my other line of research. There's a, an organization in the United States, the Freedom from Religion Foundation, that actually uh, filed a lawsuit against the parsonage exemption. So they were just tackling one piece of this. And what the courts actually came back with is said, well, uh, you guys run a nonprofit. Um, it's basically not a religious one, right? It's kind of, you know, opposing religion in some sense. We'll give you a parsonage exemption if you'll just drop the lawsuit, um, which is not what they wanted, right? They wanted the, the parsonage exemption to end, but instead what the government came back with is, well, we'll just broaden it and give you the parsonage exemption as well. So I definitely think there is favoritism here, um, and we can see this by the actions of another group, uh, not that your listeners maybe are familiar with this group, but the Satanic Temple in the U.S. is organized specifically, and we can spend an entire episode on this, but uh, specifically to highlight these kinds of privileges by asking for the same privileges for people who worship Satan. Yeah, that's where it gets really scary. And actually, this relates to, uh, I don't mean, because I'm not fear-mongering about satanic worship out there. I'm saying that the fact that you can self-denominate. Now, I'm going to kind of condense several listener comments because folks are seizing in on this, that really we're, we're, we're talking about a particular progress, a problem that's represented by certain megachurches and populist organizations, and it's really not a broad-based problem. And several listeners are making this point. This isn't a problem that pertains to the Orthodox Jewish community or even the Church of Latter-day Saints. These are fringe organizations or evangelists that are raising a ton of money, effectively as con men that are you know taking people's money and then not paying taxes on it. Do you agree with that with that assertion that this is actually a much more limited problem than we've posited tonight on the program? Um, I probably mostly agree with that statement. Uh, I, where I'm really concerned about, say, potentially removing tax exemptions from religions is those kind of rural, um, very small 
congregations or synagogues or mosques, you know, in rural areas where they're barely surviving as it is. And I think the listeners are right when they say, oh, well, look at the really big churches, the mega churches, the, the pastors or clergy who are living these exorbitant lifestyles. Uh, the only way that I would kind of push back a little bit on them is I would say, okay, well, let's think about, say, those massive financial reserves of the LDS church. What good in the world could be done by spending that money instead of hoarding that money. So that's where I would start to do And I'm just raising that as like a, a, an ethical question. They're hoarding hundreds of billions of dollars when it could be spent to address literally the, the, the rampant poverty, poverty that we see in the U.S. Why is that okay? And, and I, I, I don't know that I have an answer to that. I don't even know that it's necessarily a problem. But I, I would love to hear your listeners kind of think through why that's okay. Yeah, and, you know, there's another little group here. Um, actually, you know let me take a different question for, or different comment first. I think this is quite beautiful. I'm, I'm, I'm cleaning up the language slightly because non-native English speaker who's, who says that they're an immigrant to the United States, they're actually here illegally, uh, but they're here also in the form of um, uh, translating the word um, what's the uh, political refugee. And they're getting a lot of support from a local organization in Jersey. They don't see any other organization that could give them this type of support. It seems perfectly valid that this organization would be tax-exempt. And this is an interesting point because you know, we've talked before in the program about wonderful work that's going on in sanctuary cities and to be a little bit less political perhaps. Um, you know, churches play a very important role in poverty alleviation, particularly communities, in particular communities, particularly communities that um, are kind of forgotten or not really addressed through traditional public programs. Would we, would we really lose this if we started to tax these organizations, Professor? Yeah, another great question. I think your listeners are really asking great questions. I happen to be involved in a, a multinational research project right now where we're actually looking at refugee agencies around the world. And one of the really interesting things about this is in, in some other countries, refugee agencies are completely run by the government. So I think that listener is, in a sense, answering their own question. Right at the beginning, I said any service that religions are providing that governments would have to provide if that was taken away are effectively charitable. And so there's no reason why we should tax those kinds of organizations. Or if we just said, well, you know what, the government's going to take this over, then the government would take it over. So I absolutely agree. We don't want to lose the really valuable services that are provided by religions. I, I absolutely agree with that. Um, but what value are, are say, mega churches like those of Joel Osteen providing to society that the government would have to step in and replace if it was gone? Right, other than enriching Joel Osteen. All right, we're going to take a caller in a minute. Actually, you know, let's take the caller now. We've got a couple good other uh, text questions here, but we're running out of time. Can we take the caller on line one? Hello. Hi. Hey, Stan. Let's go, because you're running out of time, and I don't have time to waste. Uh, <laughs> the, the Catholic Church is the biggest abuser of people. Uh, can, based on that, not forget the tax laws, because of what the Catholic Church does to its own people in pedophilia, can the federal government say, we're taking away your tax-exempt status? And can they do it to other religious that have done these type of things? Or is it so tough to do that, that they can't do it? That's a great question, uh, actually. That's, that's the, yeah. Thing to be Half of them do it. By the way, some Orthodox yes. do it, too. 
Yeah, of course. The big problem is, is we know. Can you take away the status? Is there any way? Yeah. So, Professor, is there an alternative to taking away exemptions, broad-based, and actually, like, penalizing institutions? No, totally, 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 my friend, right, no, totally. I'm, I'm just rephrasing, I'm just rephrasing your, your question for the professor. Okay. Professor, have there, has there been exploration of, like, uh, penalties and so forth, for, like, you know, causing organizations to lose their tax exemption based on other uh, bad behavior? Yeah, there That's are instances of there are instances of, of religions losing their tax exemption based on bad behavior. But um, to, to kind of go at the, the listener's question directly, there is not the political will right now in the United States to go after the Catholic Church like that. Uh, just think about two instances of this, right? Uh, Catholic representation in Congress. Uh, including the president right now, who's Catholic, and Catholic representation on the Supreme Court. Um, both of them have disproportionate numbers of Catholics representing them. And so to think that we could potentially try and remove the tax exemption from the Catholic Church, which is super complicated to do in the first place, there's no political will to do that at this point. Um, I, I totally get what the, the listener is saying when, it talk, when talking about the abuse. The abuse is rampant. It's, it's awful. There's no question about that. I'm not trying to defend it. I'm just saying the political will to remove it is not there. Yeah, you 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 kind of uh, stole our thunder. We're going to do a future show on Catholic America. We were reading recently that it's the country with the greatest kind of representation at, at the legislative and executive level of Catholics per capita uh, in the in the world, more than more than Italy and Spain and other uh, prototypical Catholic countries. All right, we can't end this program, Professor, without talking about the First Amendment. We have. Uh, six different comments and questions from listeners that in one way or another address either directly or indirectly the First Amendment. There are folks that say that if exempting churches from taxation upholds the separation of church and state, which is what's embodied in the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, and then there are equal numbers of folks that seem to say in this debate that tax exemptions for churches actually put the church above the state or, or kind of violate the idea of separation of church and state established in that first amendment of the U.S. Constitution, which is the right reading constitutionally, Professor? Oh, that's a really tough question. Um, I, I think you can actually find fairly compelling arguments that go both ways. Uh, in the research that I've seen, I've actually seen that very issue, right, that people have argued both ways. Um, so I, I wish I had a really compelling kind of resolution here that I was like, oh, absolutely, it's this way or it's that way. Um, you know, if we go back far enough in, in U.S. history, part of the reason why we had to actually make it a formal law is because of that very issue. People were interpreting this in different ways, and they weren't sure what the right way to interpret this was. So I, I, I don't know that I have the answer for that one. I, I'm sorry. I, I wish I did. But that's a really challenging question. Well, that seems to be at, at, at least one of the cruxes of the matter. We're about to run up on time, but Professor Ryan Cragen, you've been great. We'd love to have you on in the, in the future on other other topics. Uh, you, you alluded to it earlier in the show, but leave us, with, if you would, just with a, a few a few seconds on um, the what you would advocate listeners to take away as a solution to this very kind of uh, uh, thorny thicket. 
Absolutely. Um, so first, I hope I made tax law interesting for your, your listeners. Uh, I know that sounds strange, but but it, I actually think it's really, really fascinating. Uh, the big takeaway that I think people should understand, so one, religions don't really pay any taxes in any meaningful way. There are a couple of exceptions to that, and they get massive indirect subsidies. Uh, I think the very first thing that we need to think about as a country, um, whether religious or not, is actually just forcing religions to fall in line with other organizations that are tax-exempt, educational institutions, scientific institutions, charitable institutions, uh, and just have them report their finances. That would open up that black box. Yeah, just open up the black box and let us see what's actually going on. And you know what? I think we would all be delighted. We're going to run up up on time. Thank you so much on that last point disclosure. Very much apropos for this program. Professor Ryan Craig, and thanks for joining us. We'll catch you next week, everyone. Get back.